Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is produced in conjunction with Mass Media, a Google partner, providing businesses with traditional and digital advertising strategy and implementation. MassMedia.net. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at AirlinesConfidential.com. He's always been an overachiever. These days, that means he's not recording this podcast in his pajamas. He's Ben Baldanza, former CEO of Spirit Airlines, who now teaches about how airlines work. Are you sure about that? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Well, he is so consumed with travel that when he first heard the word COVID, he assumed it must mean cancel our vacation if doubtful. Then he realized what it really meant. That's Seth Kaplan, NPR's here now transportation analyst. Oh, man. Pushing back (laughs) from the gate, this is Airlines Confidential, the show where we share the secrets of the airline industry and debate all the crazy things that happen in the airline world each week. And we do mean crazy. Who would have imagined when we started doing this podcast last year what the industry would look like today? But we're going to talk about cases for optimism. Well, let's hope there are some optimisms. We'll discuss whether it's possible to completely change something that everyone thought couldn't be changed. Then it's passengers behaving badly, finer whine, and your comments and questions. But first, let's prepare for takeoff with this week's news. I don't know, Ben. Is anything interesting happening in the world this week? No, I'm joking. But I guess maybe that's not just a rhetorical question, right? In a sense, not a lot is happening. Not a lot of air service. Not many new interesting route announcements. And okay, the reasons for pessimism are obvious. They're everywhere. You know them. You don't need us to tell you why this isn't such a great time in the world or in the airline industry. Ben, I've been trying to talk myself off the ledge, so to speak, and look at some reasons for optimism. Now, I'm not saying any of these things are going to happen. Uh, just, just trying to talk myself into the idea that you know maybe it won't be so bad. So, uh, so, so here we go. I want to ask you about them and get your reaction. First of all, in China, where things were as awful for two months as you could imagine anywhere, they're slowly getting back to something approaching normal in a lot of the country anyway. The COVID-19 statistics themselves seem to be getting better in terms of the number of cases and all that. Some businesses that were closed are opening. And domestic travel, at least, is rebounding. In fact, at this point, China seems more worried about not importing new cases of the virus than about exporting it. Should any of that make the rest of the world feel at all optimistic in terms of a preview of what maybe we could expect elsewhere? Well, that's that certainly is optimistic. I agree, Seth. I have to say, I don't know what I should believe from China. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, yeah. whether it was as bad as they said it was, whether it's actually getting better or not. But they certainly say that that domestic flying is coming back, and that they seem to have sort of a containment around this. And containment is something that the rest of the world doesn't seem to have. And so everywhere other than China, it still seems like, you know, the ideas of social distancing and just stop the spread or flatten the curve or whatever, you know, current buzzword you want to use to just not let this virus spread means don't get on airplanes, don't fly and things like that. And so I want to think there's optimism that this is going to end. And I know it will end at some point. I'd like to think it's going to end relatively soon. The thing I think about, Seth, is just the airline booking curve. Look, if you want to be full in July, you've got to be booking in the middle of May and June. And if you want to be full in June, you have to be booking in the middle of April and May, right? And so 
as I think about when are people going to be comfortable booking again, as we as we're recording this podcast now, the industry is actually seeing more cancellations than bookings. So there's actually net negative bookings happening in the industry now. Not only does that have to flatten, but it's got to turn around. So when are there going to be enough bookings that we can look at a month in the future and say the airline industry is going to start to build back? And I'd like to think it's soon. But to me, it seems more like it's going to be maybe the fourth quarter. I think that's kind of the first quarter I can think that it might be okay, only because I can think it's at least somewhat optimistic, but realistic that maybe by July and August, people might be willing to book flights again, which means that October and November flights could be full for October and November. What do you think about that? Yeah. And it's interesting. You know, when you go online and you look at airfares, right? Uh, and, and I do it. You know, sometimes I think about booking a trip in the future just because I say, hey, if it's if it's such a good deal that it, it's worth booking now and taking advantage of all the flexible policies, I'll do that. And other times I'm just kind of curious to see, to see what airlines are doing. Look, they are practicing pricing and revenue management just like they always do, except that it's nothing like they usually do it, right? But like sometimes you can see it. People have asked me, they said, people have said, you know, I, I looked at, at, at travel in August and I expected it to be so cheap, but I saw this flight, it wasn't all that cheap. And I say, look, airlines, again, just doing what they always do, they're sort of playing the percentages and saying, look, we know things are not going to be normal in August because of what you just said, Ben, because normally that flight in August, somebody booked it in March, not most people, but somebody booked it in March, and they're not going to have that whole booking curve. But on the other hand, flights, the farther you get out in the future, they're not always just selling them for $29 because I think they're thinking, look, we would rather take advantage of a shorter booking curve if things are getting back to normal. You know, we, we know we're not going to get all the money we would usually get, but if people feel better in July, we'd rather deal with having to fill the August flight with people feeling okay in July than completely filling it if we even could, which is it's hard to do right now with you know, by giving everything away for free now, right? And so you can kind of see that going on, really. If you look at airfares, sometimes actions, as they say, speak louder than words, you could kind of tell what airlines are thinking. And yeah, it, it's sort of those like May flights right now, those that are still scheduled where you see the really rock bottom fares because airlines are thinking, hey, we'll take whatever we can get. Sometimes as you get toward the end of the year, some of the flights at least are, are maybe not as cheap as as you would expect. And, and, and I agree, Ben, that would be, I mean, just, just intuitively, if we're lucky enough that this is a, you know, a, a two or three month thing, it's not going to be eradicated in two or three months. We know that. But if, if somehow things are stable and at least going in the right direction two or three months from now, then it makes sense that the fourth quarter is kind of where airlines still get, as you said, you know, most of the booking curve where people feel okay again. So next reason for optimism, there's this possibility that warmer weather will help slow the spread of the virus. I mean, there's no peer-reviewed science about this yet. It's all too new. But apparently some serious scientists have seen some evidence that they believe that's likely, uh, just based on where things seem to be the worst, right, in the tropical climates. I, I mean, yeah, Singapore apparently has done a good job, but also maybe part of the reason it, it hasn't been so bad there is, is, is the warmer weather. So that's our second reason for optimism. You buy into that? I would have maybe two weeks ago. I'm not sure I do now. And let me tell you why. It's been hot through this whole thing in some parts of the world. Right. And, and the virus is still spreading there somewhat. Um, in India, for example, it's hot in a lot of the country, not the whole country. But right now, India's aviation system is virtually shut down. 
I mean, yeah. even but virtually all the airlines aren't even flying and the, all the big cities are in lockdown and just like here, schools are all out and things like that. And it's been hot there for a while. So the heat didn't protect them. And, yeah. you know, they don't have a lot of reported cases. My friends there say it's just because they're not testing a lot of people, right? Yeah. If, they, if they tested yeah. a lot, they'd have a lot more reports of, sure. of infection. And so... I, my guess is it's probably better if it's hot than if it's not. But is that really a prophylactic for this? I don't think so either. I'm not trying to be the pessimist here, and I do yeah. want and I do want to be optimi- optimistic. You know, it's uh, I hate seeing businesses around here closed when I know that's the family's business, yeah. and yet they can't generate enough business because they can't sit people in the restaurant or people aren't going out to buy stuff. And yeah. that's just really terrible. And I want to feel optimistic that at least some of the local economies can start to pull back quickly here. Yeah. I, I went last night to pick up takeout from a local, you know, Tex-Mex place and the woman behind the counter, you know, knows as well. Cause we always go there. She just so sincerely thanked us for supporting them. And she's not an, an owner. You know, this is one of those franchise places. She's just the employee who's always there. And, but, but just the simple act of, of buying a burrito, uh, you know, she's thank you. And, and, <laughs> and that's, that's where we are next case for optimism. And again, I'm not, I'm not arguing in favor of any of these, just sort of trying to look on the bright side, see what maybe gives us more optimism, more reason for optimism anyway, than, than other uh, factors. There's this possibility at the infection rate. You mentioned the infection rate and maybe they're just not testing enough people in India. Possibility at the infection rate is actually much higher than we think. Now, that might sound like a bad thing, because of course, we all know the dangers of transmitting the virus to people who are at risk, or at least most of us, aside from U.S. Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky, <laughs> know about that risk. Sorry. But actually, if uh, more people than we think have it, that also means a lot of us are developing the antibodies. It also means the mortality rate is a lot lower than we think. And in fact, David Nealman, the founder of JetBlue and so many other airlines, including, he hopes, soon a new one, Breeze in the U.S., made that point the other day speaking to Neil Cavuto of Fox News. He said he was excited about a project uh, to randomly test 10,000 people in the Netherlands, uh, people with, with not necessarily any symptoms, just test the population. And that, and this is me paraphrasing, but essentially, the higher the infection rate, the better the news. What do you think about that? I think he's absolutely right. When early on people were saying that the mortality rate of this of this virus was in the 3%, 4%, maybe 5% range, which made it an extremely scary thing. I mean, the thought that I could catch a virus by walking too close to someone or touching a door handle that hadn't been wiped and have a 5% chance of dying from that. I mean, that's that's terrible. Um, If a lot more people are infected and there are a lot of people walking around infected, then you're right. There are, would be more antibodies out there. And I mean, the worst case, the worst case, right? Every is that every person on the planet has the virus. Then you can't infect anybody, right? Because <laughs> they're already infected. And but I think that's right. I think it does mean that the mortality rate could be a lot lower. And this is the one source of optimism I 100% agree with you. I think it's possible that there are more people infected, and that is a good thing because it means fewer people are dying. We are developing more antibodies. Some of these speculative drugs may not be the total answer, but are helping in some way. And all of that is optimistic to me. Yeah. And the 
idea, uh, uh, the reason I should say why this is why why this virus is is, is such a problem. I mean, there are many reasons for it, but number one, it's just the fact that it's new and nobody in the world was immune from it. I, I mean, that seems to be not to play amateur epidemiologist here, but along with everything else, I mean, it's clearly very communicable and all the rest of it. But it's not that none of us have ever caught something worse than this. It's that all seven billion of us had no immunity to this, and so. As time goes on, yeah, you're going to have people developing the uh, the antibodies. Let's hope that kind of scenario carries the day. Now, back to airline economics, something we actually know about uh, <laughs> more than epidemiology. <laughs> I, I read something in this week's Airline Weekly. It's my alma mater, where I, where I spent uh, 15 years. Uh, they're, they're still doing a great job over there. Something that caught my eye. I want to read it to you. Airline Weekly wrote, quote, just as we're all adopting new terms like social distancing and flattening the curve. You mentioned that one before. Airlines have a new term of their own describing the essence of their cost-cutting efforts. Quote, variableizing the cost base. Lufthansa mentioned it. Qantas mentioned it. So have many others. And, and Ben, this is interesting because the idea here is that the airline industry, we've talked about this in the past in other contexts, tends to be a fixed cost industry, right? Where you have these big expensive airplanes that you're paying for, leases, mortgages, no matter what. Uh, in many cases, infrastructure, your salaries are, they might be semi-variable, right? You might pay a minimum to a pilot, more if the pilot flies more. But anyway, a lot of costs that generally you have no matter what. And there are a couple of airlines in the world that have more variable cost business models. And so I'll just to mention a few. Allegiant, familiar to, to people in the US, an airline that generally has had rather cheap airplanes, doesn't fly them ver very many hours per day, and just a very variable schedule. Tuesday looks nothing like Friday because Allegiant says, hey, if not as many people want to fly on Tuesday, it's Friday. Let's just fly less. Uh, October looks nothing like July because Allegiant says, hey, if not as many people want to fly in October, let's just fly less. Allegiant, of course, a leisure-oriented airline. I know there's a lot of business travel in October. Jet 2 in the UK, another airline like that. In fact, it, it has, that I'm aware of, the most variable schedules in the world. It, you know, there are times when it flies like 10% as much as other times. So that's how those airlines have always done that. Ben, are airlines like those better positioned in an environment like this? Because everybody else is trying to figure out how to do it, and, and they're faced with this problem that just because you cut 50% of your flying, you don't cut 50% of your costs. You know, you, you cut maybe 20% of your costs, and, and so you've got less revenue than ever, and your unit costs are higher. So are those airlines lucky at a time like this, an airline like Allegiant or Jet2? Well, they kind of made their own luck, right? They built a model that is highly variable that works for their systems because they are both airlines that because of where they fly and how they fly, they can't afford to lose a lot of money when they don't fly. So they've created a very variable cost structure kind of airline, and they are better positioned in a case like this because it's not like they can fly flights that others can't fly. No one can fly that much right now, but they're losing less money while they're not flying than everyone else is. And that's what Qantas and Lufthansa are talking about. How do we variableize, even though I really don't like that word, but I know what they mean, <laughs> variableizing the cost base, meaning how do we let the cost base flex with the size of our operation. Like you said, if we cancel 50% of our flights, how can we get rid of 50% of the cost? But as we know, in the airline industry, that doesn't happen. They're not going to be able to stop paying for the planes they're not flying. Either they own the plane and will have the debt service on that, or they lease the plane and the lessors aren't likely to say, you can just stop paying me. 
their people. Are they going to lay off people or not? We that That's a big issue. They have a lot of fixed costs in the system. And that's why early on, airlines were flying so much even after the virus started, because all those flights were making cash since so many of the costs were fixed. And so I do think that airlines like Allegiant Jet 2 are better positioned right now to weather the storm. That doesn't mean they're better business model because there are other macro environments where their business model won't be as beneficial as say a Delta's or someone like that. But for right now, it absolutely is helping them. And if there is a, maybe another reason to be optimistic here for the industry, if not for the world, maybe one of the things that could come out of this, Seth, is that the airline industry will realize that being more variable is a good thing and figure out how to build some of that into their systems and into their cost structure so that when there is another event down the road, maybe they don't need taxpayer money to help keep them solvent. Yeah. And it's interesting how every so many years, there's sort of this new way of thinking, right? Uh, Look, it's important to emphasize, as you said, that's not to say that that's the way to do it all the time because other airlines have made all kinds of money. I mean, look, Spirit, uh, where you came from, did it very differently. I mean, that was all about utilization. Keep the airplane in the air. You already got the airplane, make it productive. Fly it, fly it. I mean, Southwest really invented that model a, a half century ago. So there's more than one way to do it. And, and the utilization model has been very successful in other environments. But yeah, no question that that right now you, you like to have that that variable cost base. Well, now, Ben, it's time for passengers behaving badly. Yeah, not as many passengers as usual these days, but that doesn't stop some of them from doing all the same stupid things as usual. You might remember way back in 2010, while a JetBlue plane was on the ground, a flight attendant famously said, I quit, opened the door and slid down an evacuation slide, but not before grabbing two beers from the beverage cart. Well, this time... <laughs> It was a passenger's turn aboard a Frontier Airlines flight from Denver to Washington. This according to NBC4 in Washington. And this really isn't funny. The passenger reportedly tried to open the door before the plane even landed. Thankfully, no harm done. But then after landing, the same as yet identified passenger described only as, quote, disruptive. You could say that again did manage to open the door and slide down. Airport police caught the passenger. Everyone else deplaned through the rear stairs. Ben. Someone needs to tell this passenger there's no rush to be the first to call an Uber these days. (laughs) Yeah, you know what's amazing to me about this? This is scary because obviously trying to open a door in flight could be really damaging to to everyone on that plane and the plane itself. What's interesting is you would – You would almost think, and I'm not trying to be critical of Frontier here, you would think that at that point they'd be watching that person really closely, right? Something happened and they'd put him in the seat. They'd almost stick a flight attendant right with him. To to let that person get back into that position where they could do it again is really kind of shocking to me that they would let that happen. But the fact that they did, you know, maybe he just bowled people over and maybe, maybe he was, you know, uh, physically ab- ab- abusive. I'm not sure if he was or not, but I could maybe push people aside or something like that. But yeah. I would think uh, that they uh, would have uh, sort of, you know, to the extent possible, sort of just had a real close eye on this person once they tried the crazy thing in flight. Yeah, and he didn't even have the foresight to grab two beers before he slid down, <laughs> at least not according to reports. Maybe he well, had two it- before he tried either, actually. <laughs> <laughs> that might have been the problem. Well, now at cruise altitude here on Airlines Confidential, a compliment. Yeah, really. A question and a complaint. More Airlines Confidential is next. 
Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at airlinesconfidential.com. With Ben Baldanza, I'm Seth Kaplan. This is Airlines Confidential. Fine or wine is next, but first, let's go to the mailbag. James from Australia. I can't tell what city. I just see Australia, right? Hi, guys. Keep going. We really need podcasts at this time to keep us going through this difficult period. Really appreciate that, James. Ben, you know, I have to tell you, I was out last week at the airport at Reagan National, and I ran into Oscar Munoz, the CEO of United Airlines. And he was one of the only people there. Half of the people flying seemed to be airline CEOs going to Washington to to, to deal with uh, with their issues, right? But um, and Oscar always just strikes me as this as just a very genuine you know guy. He gave me an elbow bump and and, uh, <laughs> and 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 I just sort of expressed sympathy for for what's going on. And, and I said, yeah, it's, it's got to be you know you do work on all these details, and then this happens, right? And 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 he said to me, he said, you know what? He said, Seth, he said there. Because yeah, I mean, the context is me talking. You know, United is has just made a lot of progress over the last few years, right? Now it's facing this. He said, Seth, he said there are a lot of people that have been working on this a lot longer than I have, uh, and they're dealing with the same thing. Um, but he, you know, expressed a certain amount of optimism. He said, Look, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna get through this, and it's it's gonna be okay. And somehow that made me feel a little better <laughs> coming from <laughs> coming from him. Uh, but but uh, but everybody's in the same in, in, in the same boat, and you know, and he was just there by himself boarding a flight to Chicago, no entourage or anything like that. And, and I think that was that was important for me to realize that just like everybody else in the world, there's uh, uh, the CEO of one of the largest airlines just kind of doing what he can to get through this, yep. uh, and, and, and uh, you know, for, for him and his 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 uh, his people, just like everybody else's. So thank you for that, uh, James. Appreciate it. Uh, a question now from Yoni in Wichita. Uh, Yoni writes, why are UPS and FedEx asking for bailout money? Do they really need it or are they just piggybacking? Ben, I was talking to a friend the other day. We were saying, okay, so who's, I mean, nobody, obviously everybody feels terrible what's going on, but but there are people who do benefit financially for uh, from this. And the friend said, so who would that be? Let's see, you know, epidemiologists and you know, talking through some of the obvious ones. And I said, lobbyists. Netflix. Lobbyists. <laughs> <laughs> Right, right. You know, yeah, I'm sure Netflix is all as a lobbyist because there is because here we are. There's there's going to be all this money handed out, and so look, every, everybody wants to get a piece of it. And UPS and FedEx are un, are no different from any other company in that regard. What do you say to Yoni? Are they just piggybacking? I think Yoni's um, intuition is correct that FedEx and UPS may be even benefiting from this if people are scared to go out and ordering more things online and getting more things delivered, and they deliver lots of stuff. Uh, on the other hand, I think that that's a, a fairly small view. There's a lot of business not happening, and they're not delivering a lot of things. I think the real thing here, Seth, is that the airline industry does have a lobby group, and to your point, lobbyists work in this in this environment, called A4A, which stands for Airlines for America, or at least used to. Um, and FedEx and UPS are part of A4A, meaning they pay money to be part of that lobby group. And A4A is the group that has been negotiating with the government for monies that would be either grants or loans given to the industry. And now not every airline, not every commercial airline is. There are some commercial airlines we all know of who are not part of A4A, but they will still benefit from uh, some 
for some things that happen. What is interesting to me, Seth, is that publicly, when it comes to this potential money from the government to sort of help the airline industry, there's been lots of discussions about is it grants or loans? And is it 25 billion or 50 billion? And will it have strings attached or not? But I've not heard any public discussions yet about how it would be distributed among the airlines. So let's just say for argument purposes that there's $50 million that they give to the airline industry. Well, how does A4A then says, American, this is what you get. United, this is what you get. FedEx, this is what you get. And that's going to have to be a negotiation, I think, among the airlines themselves. And my guess is that proportionate to the size of the companies and the amount they fly that UPS and FedEx are going to get a lot less than the commercial airlines are because the effect on the commercial airlines is bigger than it is for UPS and FedEx. That's my guess. That makes sense. Let me ask you about one hot topic right now, a controversial topic, share buybacks. This is something that I don't think most people in the world ever thought about until uh, until a week or two ago. But now you've, you've got Uh, Some politicians saying, look, if we're going to hand all this money out to these companies, these companies have spent all that money and more that we're going to be giving them buying back their own shares in recent years. And and airlines are being accused of that, of of taking the big tax bill windfall from a few years ago and using it to go buy – their own company shares in the open markets, which takes shares off the market and tends to prop up the share price and help the executives and the people on the boards at those companies. You say to that, what? Well, certainly share buybacks more uniquely help investors to the airline than anything else, right? They don't help consumers, right? And they don't help uh, workers at the airline so much. They, they help the people who own the stock of the airline because Whatever the company earns, you divide that by the number of shares that are traded, and that's your earnings per share, and that's a big driver of your stock price. So if you're buying back shares, you're taking shares out of the market, your denominator is getting smaller, your earnings per share goes up. And airlines, like other companies, have bought back shares over the last number of years. But I think this is a particularly cynical kind of argument, Seth. It's um, Let me give you an analogy if I can. Okay. Say we each have a friend who's... Uh, we have a mutual friend who's makes a certain amount of money but isn't rich by any stretch. But they pay their mortgage in their house and they pay the car bill and they're still paying off their student loan, but they make the payments every month. And they actually save 25% of their salary because they're really concerned about that. And they part of that is they max out their 401k with their job and they um, and they do everything right, but then they still have some money left over. So one night they decide to go out to a really nice expensive restaurant and have a really nice dinner with a friend. And somebody who doesn't know all that other stuff about that person sees them and says, can you believe that person? I know they don't make that much money and they're blowing it at this restaurant. (laughs) That to me is the argument of, you know, you these airlines are terrible because they've bought back shares. What that's ignoring is what airlines have spent a huge multiple on, buying new airplanes, giving employees lots of raises, developing lots of new technologies, lots of infrastructure. And yes, they've made a lot of money. And while they've done all that, with some money left, they bought back some shares. But to look at that one activity and try to say, well, since you've bought back shares, you've been not prudent with your money therefore you don't deserve any help. 
help. I think that's just a terrible argument. And it, it's looking at the person out to dinner and saying that person's irresponsible with their money when you don't know anything else about what they've done with the rest of their money. Yeah. Well, we gave Rand Paul a hard time earlier. So I guess now, we, now we're giving Liz Warren a hard time, right? <laughs> well, do you have a question <laughs> for us? You can call us at 305-379-7429 and record a question for us anytime during the week. That's 305-379-7429. You can email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com or you can jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. You'll see a form on there to, to submit your question. We'll be getting our initial descent on today's show. Time for fine or whine. We listen to an actual customer complaint, and then we talk about whether a complaint is fine or if they're just whining. Uh, ben, I've done a terrible job of doing what I promised about trying to get away from all the coronavirus talk. It just seems like every week there's something, and we're trying to at least do something different with it. Talk about airline economics and not just the same things in general that everybody's read about everywhere else. But anyway, let's get away from that again, kind of like the customer slid down the slide. This is a complaint, you know, that could happen anytime, right? Uh, this is a complaint from back before coronavirus. Yeah, back in simple times when people used to moan or groan about very different things. Ben, the complaint. Yes, this one is from Kawana of Houston complaining about Delta. Kawana writes, I called and spoke to several people needing to reschedule a flight for my son to come home from college on spring break. So her son's still in college and he still will fly. <laughs> he plays for the school basketball team and they are in the playoffs. So he needs to reschedule his departure date. I'm not asking for a refund only to reschedule and I'm being told no. Okay. So again, this is for, forget about coronavirus here with all the new flexible change plans. You got to put yourself back in the mentality from before where you bought an unrefundable play ticket and then Ben, the playoffs. Come on, there's got to be a waiver for playoffs. <laughs> well, the playoffs are great for the son, and he should be proud, and I'm sure the mom is proud too. But I totally understand why the airline did not allow them to reschedule. I'm sure they would change with a change fee. That sort of would be the normal thing. But again, he took that seat out of inventory, meaning the airline could not sell that seat to anyone else. So now he wants to put that seat back into inventory and take a new seat that the airline maybe has already sold to someone else or could sell to someone else new. So I totally have to side with the airline in this one. I think this is a wine. It's one of the, you know, you should feel great about the fact that you're a good basketball player and you play on a team that makes the playoffs. But when things change, like my time has changed and now my flights have have to change, that's your change. That's not the airline's change. So don't make your problem their problem. I got to go with the airline in this one, Seth. I think you're just not impressed that it was like, you think it's just like the first round of the playoffs. And if it was the state championship, <laughs> then, I, and then I know you would side with Kawana, right? <laughs> Final <laughs> approach now. That does it for Airlines Confidential. Please fasten your seatbelt and ensure your seatbacks and tray tables are in their upright and locked positions. And remember, we'd love to hear your questions at 305-379-7429. Or you can email us, questions at airlinesconfidential.com or jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. From the Airlines Confidential Studios, I'm Seth Kaplan. And I'm Ben Baldanza. Talk to you soon. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.